welcome of Advent of Love, uh, please turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, and we'll be specifically looking at verse 20. Verse 20. Having prayed, as we celebrate the Advent of theme of love, now as Advents go, I've seen love as the last candle. I've seen love as we celebrate this morning as the second candle. And it's all really based on traditions. For me, though, I think love should be the very first candle because it's the very essence and preeminence of who God is, is love. This whole Christmas season, the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ, the whole plan of redemption is based solely out of His love for His lost creation. All throughout the Word of God, the theme of love is present. It's seen within His care in each of us, in His patience in dealing with us, in His provisions by way of His providence, in His will for our lives, for He wants the best for us, in His decrees, things that He he demands to be done by way of His Word, and His covenants that He makes with His people. In fact, His law is established by His love. And so are His judgments. His promises are based in His love. And His prophecies reveal it. The whole plan of redemption from the fall until Christ and His death and resurrection was orchestrated because of the love of God. It makes sense that in everything God does is love because the very essence of who God is, is love. Some will, like such as A.W. Tozer, identify love as an attribute of God, and there's, I guess, nothing wrong with that. However, he even admits that the true essence of who God is, is His love, and that everything flows from that. Within John's first letter, there are two distinct themes. There is the theme that God is light, And then there's the theme that God is love. Given we are in the Advent season, I think it's proper for us to focus on the theme of love. And we've heard Scripture already this morning quoted from 1 John, which I label at times the love letter from John, the love letter to God. Now, when we examine John's letter, I'm particularly drawn to the very end of John in this verse, chapter 20, because sometimes in in the epistles, the summation is found at the end of the letter as to what they're discussing. And of course, in the theme of love, John, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, says this, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. When we look at this scripture, when we look at this one particular scripture, there are three assurances of God's love that are revealed to me. 
things that popped out to me. And that's what I want to talk to you this morning about. The first one is the assurance of the plan of redemption by way of God's love. As I stated earlier, God's whole plan of redemption was born out of His love. From the very beginning, God set in motion the plan of redemption. Being perfect in His knowledge and time, the garden and the sin of man did not catch God by surprise. He was not shocked to learn what had happened. And as he was strolling through the garden looking for Adam and Eve, who were hidden because they were naked, it wasn't without his knowing. From the very beginning, God drafted his plan of redemption. He had it in place. It's one of the great mysteries. It was not a hasty response to man's sin, as if God was up there going in heaven. What? They sin? Oh, now what am I going to do? God already had set in motion what he was going to do. It was not plan B because plan A failed. All of the events were in the perfect knowledge of God to include the sin of man because he has complete knowledge. He's not constrained by linear time like we are. And he's sovereign and in control of all things. Therefore, when men fell into sin, God's plan of redemption was set in motion. And it shows the great love of God that He has for us because He wanted to redeem that which was lost as a result. God could have washed His hands of it. God could have said, I told you not to do that. And yet you chose to. I'm done with you. I'm going to erase you and start over. But he didn't do that. He didn't do that with Adam and Eve. He didn't do it with Noah. He didn't do it with you and me. He even tested Moses. You're right, Moses. What are we to do with these people? Let's destroy them. And Moses stood up and defended his people and reminded God of his promise. Now, some people say that Moses changed the mind of God. Moses didn't change the mind of God. God was changing Moses. And for the first time, Moses stood up for the people that God entrusted in his care, which showed the heart. So God's desire is never to destroy that, but to redeem it. And from the very beginning, it was his plan. In fact, the first revelation of God's redemptive plan was in the garden itself. When he said to the serpent, who was Satan, he shall bruise your head. He was Christ. And it was the first foretelling of his coming and his victorious victory and redemptive work. From that point throughout the Old Testament, the redemptive plan of Christ was visible in each book. We see within the historical narratives the establishment of Christ's lineage and kingship through David. Within the books of poetry reveal his coming, his redemption, his lordship, and his purpose. Within the prophets, they foretold of his birth. They foretold of his ministry that he would have, the death that he would suffer, the resurrection that would come, and his second coming for his church. All laid out in the Old Testament. 
And after 400 years of silence between Malachi or Micah and the New Testament, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, son of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, prophesied of the coming Savior and the birth of Jesus Christ when he said in Luke, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. You know, it's estimated that there are at least, I gotta, I gotta verify something real quick, because I'm not gonna move on until I figure that out. <laughs> Sorry, breaking. Malachi. Malachi, thank you. <laughs> gotta get that right. I didn't have it written down, so therefore I was. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. It is estimated that there are 300 prophecies within the Bible concerning Jesus and the plan of redemption. Now, I've never done a full study of that. That was just cited, and I don't know if that's actually, that figure is accurate, if there's more, if there's less. What is interesting, however, is I, I did do a study on, or I did read a study on the fulfillment of prophecies from one individual who read, who basically did a study that 55 prophecies, specific prophecies, came true by virtue of Christ's birth, ministry, death, and the church. They were all fulfilled. 55 of them. Hundreds of years before Christ's birth, hundreds of years before Christ's ministry, Christ came. And he fulfilled those 55 prophecies. Let's put that in terms of math. Peter Stoner, a mathematician, took just eight of those prophecies. Just eight. And calculated them to be one in ten to the 17th power. Don't ask me what that really means. But it was a one in ten to the 17th power of it happening. Just in those eight prophecies. Put that in perspective, that would be the same as a blind man choosing a marked coin that was placed in a sea of coins that covers the state of Texas at two feet of depth to fulfill one prophecy. And Jesus fulfilled 55. In fact, Jesus fulfilled all of the prophecies that were foretold in the Old Testament. Now, in a culture that so easy, easily dismisses the validity of the Christian faith as fanciful belief of stories of old, the evidence that is of literary and historical significance is overwhelming as to who he is. In fact, if you wish to take the deity of Jesus out of it, if you were to take the divine nature of Jesus out of it and just made him a historical person in the past, People would not doubt who he was, what he did, and where he did it. But as soon as you enter in his divinity, his mission, his purpose, people dismiss it. Why? Because in order to understand that, they must be spiritually discerned. And I'll talk about that in just a few moments. Yes, we are to receive by way of faith that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary lived a sinless life, cultivated a ministry that lives in His church to this day, and redeemed man through His atoning sacrifice for our salvation. But when one looks at the amount of the prophetic evidence available to us 
on a historical level and a literary source level, it anchors that faith and allows us to present it in a very convincing way. When I was first saved, I didn't understand any of those prophecies. I didn't know anything about that. I was raised as a Catholic. We didn't go into prophetic messages. We didn't, we didn't read the Old Testament. At least I'm, I'm sure they did, but I probably was not paying attention that day. But when I became a Christian, I did not understand the prophecies that I would hear on prayer night. Like the book of Daniel, I did a Bible study where we went through Daniel. I was like, what is that? But slowly but surely, through the process of discipleship and studying and learning the Word of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then the prophecies started to make sense as to what was being fulfilled. And as a result, I had confidence in my faith to go out and say, no, this was fulfilled. These prophecies, like that analogy, is fulfilled. Sometimes people need to hear the proof to ignite the seed of faith to come to Christ. And our, and our ability to witness to people is not merely based upon our faith, but facts. They're indisputable. Lee Strobel, Case for Christ, one of the best books that you can read and keep in your possession to give to somebody who doubts the validity of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that book is going to save them only through the power of the Holy Spirit as someone come to the salvation. Only the Holy Spirit woos that person into the presence of, of Jesus Christ and presents them with a conviction of sin and repentance. But you know what? Sometimes all it takes is a book, is a statement, is a fact. It's like the game Jenga, right? Where you pull that final piece and everything comes crumbling down. Took a screensaver for one person. And so, yes, we are to have faith in Christ. Yes, but we need to assure that faith with the trust, belief, and confidence that what this word says, says accurately and factually. You know, John was an eyewitness of the accounts of Jesus because he was one of Jesus' closest disciples. And in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-4, through 4, we read this, That which was from the beginning, which we had heard, prophetically, which we have seen with our eyes, personal experience, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, became real to them. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we now proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you that your joy may be complete. John summed it all up right there in the confidence that we have in the Word of God, the fulfillment of the Word of God in its prophetic messages, and that the plan of redemption was given to man through the love of God. When the Holy Spirit reveals the truth of God's words as it relates to Christ, of all that has taken place and the prophecies that were fulfilled, it gives us great confidence and faith and boldness to speak lives into others as John did. 
So through God's love, we have the assurance that from the beginning, the plan of redemption was in place. And that we have all the proof of all the prophecies that gives us confidence and faith. The second thing that we're assured of by John's verse in chapter 5, verse 20, is that we will receive the Holy Spirit. It is one of the great assurances of God's love that He wants to abide with us. And He wants us to abide with Him. God not only assures us of His love by putting into motion the plan of redemption in which He sent His Son for the atoning sacrifice, but He further demonstrates His love by sending His Holy Spirit that we may abide in Him and know Him intimately. Now, there are many works of the Holy Spirit and receiving numerous ministries by way of the Holy Spirit for empowerment in the church. But one of the loving benefits of sending the Holy Spirit is what I just said, and that we get to abide with the Father on an intimate level. 1 John 4, verses 15 through 16, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us, so that we could we have come to know and to believe that the love of God has for us because He abides in us. To abide means to be one, and God's love desires that we be one with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. To be knit together intimately. When Christ accomplished the work of reconciliation and giving us the ministry of reconciliation, it was to bring back into union that which were separated by sin. And through Christ, it was accomplished. It's no different than a rift between friends. There needs to be reconciliation. And because of the fact that we have the ministry of reconciliation, we can reconcile to one another in the love of God. When we sinned and we fell away, God says, I need to reconcile this relationship. Therefore, through the atoning sacrifice of Christ, he allowed the ministry of reconciliation to happen so that we can then again be one with the Father through His Son. God loves us so much that He desired to give His Son so that we could abide in Him in the most spiritually intimate way. Think of that. The Creator of the universe wants to have an intimate and personal relationship with you. Prior to that, God was aloof. God was the distant God. God was the God of the Old Testament. But now we have a personal God, a personal relationship that we can have with Him. 1 John 4, 16. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. The great test of our union with God is by the abiding love that we have with him. Because God is love and we are His, and we are redeemed by love and given the fruit of love, it is now within us to love, and it is the greatest witness of God within us. Sherry shared that this morning. We are able to love others because of the fact that God loved us first. We cannot love, we can love in a worldly sense by the loves that Mike described. But there's something missing. And it's a true love. It's a perfect love. 
It's a sacrificial love. It's a love of the heart. And that's what agape love is. It's the love that motivates us. Scripture says, if you love me, you will follow my commandments. It's what binds us together. Again, Scripture, they will know us by our love. It reveals God. No one has ever seen God if we love one another. But God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. When people enter into this church and they see the love of God between us, that is evidence that God is abiding in this place. But God's love also keeps us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God. God keeps us in His love, and we stay in Him through His love by abiding in Him. Brothers and sisters, God's desire to abide in us, and we are in Him through the Holy Spirit, so that we may believe in the love of God has for us to feel it in the very depths of our souls, so it springs forth in loving others. Secondly, the Father gave us the Holy Spirit so that we may know Him intimately, on a personal level, even more, on a spiritual level. Our mantra here in the church is to know Him and to make Him known. And the only way that we can know Christ is by way of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to read to you out of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. It's kind of lengthy, but... There's a point. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that the might understand the things freely given us by God. What those verses are saying is that through the Holy Spirit, we can know God on an intimate level because they were revealed to us. And He wants us to know Him on that level, to fully understand the things in His Word because He desires for us to know the truth. Remember, we are children of God. And because we are His, He desires to reveal Himself to us in an intimate way. It was the revelation that God gave us that brought us to salvation. Where the Holy Spirit revealed God and His love towards us and convicting us of sin. From there, God continues to reveal who He is through His Word for the purpose of building you up in faith, strengthening you in the life that He's called you to live and to grow in the wisdom and the knowledge of Christ. It's all called sanctification.
Additionally, He's given us His living Word. And from it, we know the attributes of God, the heart of God, the will of God, and the mind of God. You want to know who God is? It's right here. He's written it all for you to know. But it takes the Holy Spirit to understand it. There are scholars who understand this word inside and out from a historical um, literary and, and also from a geographical perspective. But unless they possess the Holy Spirit, they will never understand the revelation of it. Only a select few had this revelation prior to Christ in the Old Testament. But we all have been given this revelation by way of the Holy Spirit. And the reason is love. You know, when one thinks about it, love is essential in really knowing somebody. There's an old song, and I don't even know why I remember this, but I think a Peter Spector wrote it. But the song is, to know, know, to know him is to love him. You might have heard it back in the 90s, I think, Emmylou Harris, Dolly Parton, and Linda Ronstadt sang it. To know, know, know him is to love, love, love him. To really know somebody is to love them. Why? Because love opens up our hearts and reveals who we are and to receive others. Love moves our emotions in order to feel something special for that person. Love opens our person and allows us to trust and to be vulnerable. Love allows us to forgive and to overlook an offense because we care for that person. Love does a great many things. And when it comes to relationships, whether it is a man or of God, God allows us to know each other through love. Through love. So we are assured of God's love by way of the Holy Spirit who desires to abide in us and us in Him, but also that we may know Him intimately. The third assurance that John identifies in verse 20 is eternal life. One of the great assurances of God's love is that we have the promise of eternal life. Where the plan of redemption is told and fulfilled upon the birth and ministry of Christ, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the believer as evidential assurances of God's love, they also give us the assurance to believe in faith the promise of eternal life. As God's highest creation, we were created to live eternally, spiritually. When sin entered into the garden, so did death. And to ensure they did not live forever, God removed the tree of life. As a result, each person since Adam and Eve have died and are now buried in a physical state except Christ and one other. But death came spiritually as Romans 5.12 says. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all men have sinned. We're born into it. There's no escaping it. And because we also suffered a spiritual death, there are eternal consequences for that. 
And these will, and this is what Jesus said, and these will go away into eternal punishment, those who are, do not believe in him. But the righteous who place their faith in Christ into eternal life. That's a hard saying in the world in which we live today. But it's true. God's redemptive plan was not only to provide a new life in Christ who was atoning sacrifice here on earth, but also to provide the gift of eternal life forevermore. John 5, 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now we need to understand that this is a conditional promise and that we must place our faith in Jesus Christ. And when we do, we receive the free gift of eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is a gift given out of love. It's not an entitlement. It's not swayed by your opinions or your perspectives or your logic. There are many who believe that God of love would never banish His creation to a life in hell, and yet Jesus' words can never be more true. I talk to people a lot about salvation, and they always, always come up with a logical argument. And my response to them is always the same. Because God gave it to me, it's effective. If you determine the elements of your salvation, then you are God. And what are you doing here? Why are you struggling with life? If you're God, you can make it all perfect. But you're not God. Therefore, you cannot determine the elements of your salvation. Therefore, you must go to where those elements exist. And that is in the truth of God. It blows me away how some people who don't have the time to believe in God get offended when you tell them in a conversation that they may be going to hell if they don't have faith in Christ. Who are you to judge me? Why do you react that way if you don't believe anyway? Because down deep inside, that person is created in the image and likeness of God. And where they don't want to go at night when it's really quiet is the question of what if. That is a question that haunted me for the majority of my life. What if? I would lie awake at night when all the noise of the day and all the noise of life is quiet and I was just there with my thoughts. That question would pop up. What if? All my friends that were Christians that were kept witnessing to me in high school that I kept casting off as saying, leave me alone. I, I know who I am. I, I go to this church. I'm good to go. They wouldn't let me alone. And because of what they were witnessing to me, I would go to bed at night and my mind would go to what if? What if? That question hounded me until I put myself on my knees and said, God, I can't deal with this anymore. And I gave my life to Christ. And that question has never entered into my mind since. Here's a statement I want to share with you. Before salvation knocked upon my heart, I feared what was beyond the door. But now that I have answered it, 
and receive thy gift, I fear no more. Eternal life in Christ is a gift we receive as a promise given to us by our Father's love. It's how much He loves you. He wants you to be with Him forever in His house that He has prepared for you. This morning we talked about the assurances of God by virtue of what, James, uh, what John is talking about here in verse, um, chap, verse John chapter 5, verse 20. And in it we talk about the assurance of the fulfillment of the plan of redemption that gives us great confidence in our faith. And that Christ did come and did what he, who, he was who He said He was and did what He said He did, was going to do, which was redemption. Again, He also gives us the assurance by way of His Holy Spirit, the possession of the Holy Spirit as evidence of His love. And finally, we have the assurance of God's love through eternal life, that when this life is over, we will live forevermore in His presence, glorifying Him every day. These are the assurances of God's love. And I will leave you with this last verse, also from 1 John chapter 4. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that your word is filled with your love for us. We're thankful that your love, Father, set in motion the plan of redemption, to send your Son as a sacrifice for our sins. All because you love for us. You wanted to reconcile us. You wanted to redeem us. You wanted to put back into union that relationship that was seared. And Father, we know that the assurance of your love is by way of your Holy Spirit within us, bringing out this life in Christ. And Father, we know that one day we will be with you forevermore. And it gives us great hope in this life that we live today. And so, Father, with this theme of Advent of love, we thank you for your love. We thank you, Father, that you've loved us first and that you've given us the ability to love you and to love others. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. You know, one of the things that reminds us of God's love is the communion table. And this morning, 